are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik. Hopefully, I'm on with both audio and video right now. I'm just remembering last week when I started off and had no audio going. There I was just moving my lips and nothing coming out. But I think I've got it on now from the very beginning. And I think that we can say hello to everybody. Greetings on this Thursday afternoon, or at least it's right about 12 noon for me right here on the West Coast of the United States. I'm here speaking to you in the little studio I have in my back garden. And I'm very pleased to come together with you to answer your questions And to talk about the Bible, to talk about the Christian life, to talk about whatever you want to talk about, here's how it works. I begin with a lead question uh, that's something left over from a previous question and answer that we didn't get to, something that came in on social media, some other kind of question, whatever it is, we begin with a lead question, and then for the next hour or so, we'll take uh, questions that you submit to the live chat and our moderator will pass on to me. Uh, So... I'm glad you're here with us. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. I'm a pastor. Well, I'm not pastoring a congregation right now, but I I still, I guess I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. I'm definitely a Bible preacher, uh, teacher. Sometimes I speak at conferences. Probably I'm most widely known for the online Bible commentary that I've had absolutely free online, first at Blue Letter Bible, then at my own website, Enduring Word. Uh, for well more than 25 years, and some people find it helpful. Uh, There's not a lot of absolutely free, uh, biblically faithful, Genesis to Revelation, Bible commentaries out there, but I've got one of them. And again, you may or may not find it helpful. Some people do. I'm sure some people don't. That's to your taste. All right, now let's get to today's question here. Uh, A question comes in to us. Uh, I think it came in through email or social media. Here we go. Is Sheol or Hades a Christian form of purgatory? I understand there's no purification in Sheol or Hades, but is it the same place as Abraham's bosom? Are dead believers also there waiting? All right, well, you're asking a great question here, and I didn't catch the name of the person who asked this question, but that's fine. You're asking a great great question, and let me just simply get it to it. I, I can answer your question with a quick answer, and then let's talk about it a little bit more. The quick answer is no. Sheol or Hades is not a Christian form of purgatory. Not at all. Because what we would say, and what I would say, although I, I do like to acknowledge with these Christians. It's not like there's a universal understanding among these things, among all those who are truly Christians and truly believe the Bible. I mean, when you think about the history of Christian theology, there hasn't been one unified take on this. So I want to acknowledge that. Uh, But then again, you're asking me the question for what's my understanding of this biblically, so I'm happy to give you my perspective. I believe that the best understanding of Sheol or Hades comes from a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. And there Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, there's a lot of people who consider this to be a parable. 
just a made up story. But I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think Jesus was telling a story about something that actually happened and that Jesus had access to and understanding to because he's not only man, he was also God and is also God. Uh, so from his divine nature, from his divine resources, Jesus understood about this exact situation. And he tells a story about um, a, a very rich man who is given no name, traditionally Christians called him Dives, for whatever reason, uh, and then a poor man who is given a name named Lazarus. And the rich man was selfish and ate his sumptuous food and didn't care anything about Lazarus, the poor man who was outside his gate. And uh, Jesus used all that. But then Jesus says that they both died. And he described the fate of the rich man saying, verse 23 of Luke chapter 16, that the rich man being in torments in Hades. So in the story that Jesus told, Jesus described a place that he called Hades, which seems to have been the common abode of the dead. Lazarus, who's described earlier in the story, was in a nearby place that verse 22, Jesus called it the bosom of Abraham. That, that's just a, a place meaning the comfort of Abraham, the, the affection of Abraham. So they weren't necessarily far apart. If you want to take it very literally, they were within a line of sight. But one man, the rich man, was in a place of torment and Lazarus was in a place of comfort and blessing. It's best to say that what Jesus described here, again, in my opinion, you'll, you'll find other people approach the text differently, but in my opinion, it's best to say that these two men, Lazarus and the rich man, were in two areas of the same place, the place of the dead. In Greek, it's called Hades. I think the equivalent term in Hebrew is Sheol, the grave. It's the world beyond. And the two different compartments of this place was one was a place of comfort, the bosom of Abraham, and the other was a place of torment. And from this story of Jesus, we find what I would call some hints regarding the world beyond as it existed in the past and to some respect how it exists now. From the description of Jesus, we may say that at that time, the time Jesus spoke this, and again, Jesus spoke this before his finished work on the cross, before the new covenant was instituted, we would say that the spirit or the soul of the human dead, whether believing in the Messiah or not, went to a place called Hades. Some in Hades rested in comfort, others suffered under the torments of fire. Now, again, Hades is a Greek word, but it seems to carry much the same idea as Sheol, a Hebrew word that has the simple idea of the place of the dead. Sheol has no direct reference to either torment or eternal happiness. It's just the world beyond. It's the grave. By the way, the understanding of the afterlife in the Old Testament is much less clear than in the New Testament. And there's reasons for that that I won't get into now. But, you know, when, when we use the term hell, for example, 
we don't think of hell as having a good place and a bad place and deservedly so there is no good place in hell but the word hades is not like that hades or sheol is just the place of the dead that's why we would say hades is technically not hell it's not what we would also call the lake of fire that place is called gehenna gehenna is a greek word borrowed from the hebrew language and in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and 44, Jesus spoke of hell or Gehenna. Again, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Valley of Hinnom. That's a place that was outside Jerusalem's walls and was desecrated by Molech worship and human sacrifice. It was also a garbage dump where rubbish and refuse were burned and the smoldering fires and festering worms of the Valley of Hinnom made it a very graphic and effective picture of the fate of the damned. That, that's the place also known as the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, Hades is something of a waiting place until the day of final judgment. Since the finished work of Jesus on the cross, there is no more waiting for believers who die. They go directly to heaven to the presence of the Lord. So I'd really want to stress here, Hades is not purgatory. Number one, because according to the Roman Catholic conception of, of purgatory, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more on that in a moment. Purgatory is a place for those people who are saved. Purgatory is not a place for those people who will be damned. Purgatory leads to heaven in the Roman Catholic conception. It does not lead to hell. So it's only saved people who even go to purgatory. No. In Hades, as it exists now, only those who die outside of Christ go to Hades. And there they await the final judgment. This place that we call the bosom of Abraham, this, this place of comfort within Hades, I believe that that area was, so to speak, closed for business at the finished work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus led captivity captive, and he led those souls, those saints, to heaven because the price had finally been paid. Their salvation was accomplished. That which they looked forward to was fulfilled. And since then, the believing dead do not go to Hades, they go right to heaven. They go right to the presence of the Lord. As Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, saying that Hades is not purgatory, I need to stress on this. Purgatory does not exist. Purgatory is an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. Though there are some other groups, such as some Anglicans, they have inherited this error, but it originated with certain doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church. And I have to say that in my understanding, the idea of purgatory was created to make sense of the Roman Catholic system of salvation. You see, in the Roman Catholic system of salvation, you're saved by checking all the sacramental boxes. There's seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, and you receive God's grace for salvation through the sacraments. 
So Holy Communion is a sacrament. I receive communion, I get grace. Uh, baptism is a sacrament. I'm baptized, I get grace. Uh, holy matrimony, marriage is a sacrament. I perform that sacrament, I get God's grace. Uh, confession of sin is a sacrament. I confess my sins, I get God's grace. Uh, holy unction, holy orders, the prayers at death, that's a sacrament. I receive it. I, if you check enough sacramental boxes, you receive God's grace and you're saved. Well, here's the problem in the Roman Catholic Church. They, they had plenty of people that checked the right sacramental boxes, yet they lived like the devil. There was no change of life at all in them. So how do you square this? Look, I know they're saved because they checked the right sacramental boxes, but if you look at their life, they live like a devil. Uh, how do you reconcile the two? And this is how the Roman Catholic Church reconciled it. Oh, they don't go straight to heaven. They go to purgatory and they suffer first before they go to heaven. Their, their impurities are purged from them. That's where the whole word purgatory comes from, from purging. They go to purgatory. They're purged from their wickedness of all their wicked life on earth. And then once they're purged, they go to heaven. And if you think about this, it's like the worst, the worst person you were, the longer you spend in purgatory, the more suffering you have to endure, the longer the burning of purgatory's fires have to work on you until you're cleaned up enough to go to heaven. Only when all their sin is purged out of them first by their sufferings in purgatory, that's the only way that they can go to heaven. But friends, that isn't biblical at all. Believers who die are not in Hades. They're sure not in purgatory. They go to the presence of the Lord. There is no purgatory that exists and the believer does not go to this non-existent place. For the believer, for those who are born again, for those who are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that the new covenant that he instituted, all their sins were purged, not by going to purgatory, but by what Jesus did at the cross. Friends, I need to make it very clear to you. Salvation is not a matter of checking sacramental boxes, despite what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. As Spurgeon is reported to have said, and I say reported to have said, because even though I got his bobblehead back here, I've never found the specific quote of Spurgeon. If you've ever run across it in one of his sermons, please send me a message. So it, it's, it's said that Spurgeon said this. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Do you get that? If I've received grace that saves my soul, that same grace is going to have some change in my life. And evidence of salvation is a changed life. Now, look, we need to stress the changes don't happen all at once, and they're never complete on this side of eternity. No Christian is sinlessly perfect. That's not what we're talking about. But there should be some evidence of salvation if the work of God's grace is real in a person's life. And if there's no evidence of a living faith, then checking all the sacramental boxes, it just doesn't matter much. So no, to answer the question most directly, there is no connection between Hades and purgatory because number one, 
Hades, though it is a place of torment, it's not the ultimate destiny of the damned. That is the lake of fire described later on in the book of Revelation, also known as Gehenna in the scriptures. Secondly, believers don't even go to Hades. As it says very plainly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul didn't say to be absent from the body is to be in purgatory. He didn't say to be absent from the body is to be in Hades. No, it's to be in the presence of the Lord, united with our Savior. So I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, It's interesting and it's good for us to think about these things, about the world beyond, because friends, we are all headed there. We're all headed. Unless Jesus Christ comes for us first, and that's what I hope happens. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha is what I say. But if Jesus Christ does not come for us first, we're all going to die. And we all have to reckon with what we will face in the world beyond. And, and we only know bits and pieces of it. Sometimes we wish we knew more, but we need to sober-mindedly consider what we do know. Thank you for that question. All right, let's go to the questions here in the live chat. Joseph asks this question, where do Enoch and Elijah fit into the question of Sheol, Hades, Abraham's bosom, and heaven, considering neither have died? Okay, um, Joseph I could give you a great big, I don't really know. We can sort of conjecture something. It's an interesting question. Um, It would seem that Enoch and Elijah were special exceptions because at least conceptually, they went to be with the Lord in heaven. Though we must admit that the scriptures don't expressly say that conceptually they present that idea because they both went up, but it doesn't exactly say that they were in the presence of the Lord in heaven. So it's possible that they went to the bosom of Abraham. That's where they were carried away to. But it's also possible that simply as a special exception, they were carried away into the presence of heaven. That's possible. You know, um, The Bible makes categorical statements, and even when those categorical statements, we we need to allow for some exception. For example, in Hebrews, what is it, Hebrews chapter 4 somewhere? (laughs) The author of Hebrews says that it's appointed unto men once to die and then to face the judgment. That's just a basic principle. That's what God has appointed to men, once to die and then to face the judgment. Okay, you got that? Well, are there some exceptions that? Of course there's some exceptions. I can point to you some people in the scriptures who never died, like Enoch and Elijah. And I can point you to some other people in the scripture who died twice, like Lazarus and uh, the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead and um, uh, uh, other people in the New Testament, like Dorcas in the New Testament. So, uh, again, are are there some rare exceptions? Yes. Uh, So, if God made a rare exception out of Enoch and Elijah, it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. So I would say either one of those answers, whichever one kind of fits best for you. Thank you for that question, Joseph. Next one comes from Brian, who asks, what do you think happens to an adult who dies having never heard about Jesus? All right, well, Brian, I think the scriptures are pretty clear on this. That if a person has never heard of Jesus, and you're talking about an adult, so let's talk about an adult, someone who is... Uh, at whatever age God would hold them to accountability. And I don't think that the Bible gives us a specific age of accountability, but it does give us a principle of accountability. 
because there's not one exact age at which everybody is accountable before God, but there is accountable before God, okay? So you're talking about a person past that point, an adult, they die having never heard of Jesus. What happens to them? Well, I think the Bible is very clear that they will be judged by what they did know. For example, Romans in the first few chapters makes it very clear that God has revealed himself to humanity in at least two ways. All humanity has had some revelation of God in creation and in conscience. So creation tells us that there is a God and that he's a powerful God, that he's a brilliant God, that he's a designing God, that he is a God that provides. Um, Creation tells us that. And then conscious tells us there are some things that are right and wrong. And I shouldn't do the things that are wrong. And I should do the things that are right. God reveals himself to all humanity in creation and conscience. And God will hold people to account, not for rejecting Jesus Christ if they've never heard of him, but he will hold them for account for how they have responded to what he has revealed to them in creation and conscience. Now, here, uh, Brian, is that leads to a division in the Christian world, in Christian theology. Some people believe that it is possible, m- maybe not even likely, but let's just say possible, for a person to respond in creation and conscience by what God has revealed to them in creation and conscience, to respond to God in faith and thereby be made righteous by faith. There's other people who say, no, that is absolutely impossible. No one can respond to God uh, in faith and receive the righteousness that comes from responding to God in faith without a revelation of Jesus Christ. I put myself more in the former category that I believe it's at least possible for a person to respond to God rightly uh, by what he's revealed in creation and conscience. I'm not making any judgment to whether or not that's likely, but at least I think it's possible. Uh, But I understand how there's a a debate about this. And I got to say, I hold that position, but I hold it somewhat softly because I do understand and appreciate the arguments on the other side. I hope that's helpful for you there, Brian. Uh, Lucho asks, good evening from Florida. Hey, Lucho. What happens if someone hasn't heard the gospel and dies? How are they judged? Well, okay, Lucho, thank you for that question. I think I answered it in the response I gave to Brian. They will be judged by what they have heard. Again, God is a righteous judge. He's a perfect judge. And it wouldn't be righteous of a judge to judge somebody by a law or, or by to judge them for rejecting truth that they never heard, that they never came across. So God won't judge people on that basis. He doesn't need to. God can judge the world on the basis of what he has revealed to all humanity in creation and in conscience. Thank you for that, Lucha. Next question comes from Tony, who asks, when the condemned are resurrected, and cast into hell for all of eternity, how are they being sustained? Will God have to sustain them as he will do for those who are saved? Tony, um, in a way, yes. 
I think the answer to your question is bound up in something that Jesus said. Uh, it's recorded in the Gospel of John, but I, I can't give you a chapter or verse. You could find it by, by what I tell you about this verse. Uh, Jesus talked about a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now, all the time, believers think about the glory of resurrection and how we in Christ are going to receive a resurrection body, a body that's suited to resurrection life in heaven with the Lord, in the new creation that he makes. Praise the Lord for that. But Jesus spoke not only of the resurrection of the just, but also of the unjust. Unbelievers, those who die in their rejection of Jesus Christ, will also receive a resurrection body. And it'll be a resurrection body suited for Gehenna, for the lake of fire, for hell. Certainly not suited to enjoy it, but to exist in it. So really, that, that's the best way to understand it, Tony. It's what Jesus spoke about with the terms, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. All right, next question comes from Layla, who asks, uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Why will we need a new earth if we're going to have a new heaven? Why do we need both? Well, Layla, uh, good question. But, um, because God's redemptive work is not going to erase this earth, but transform it. Uh, God doesn't say and look at this world and say, it's so rotten that I have to destroy it. God says, no, I'm going to make it new. And so eternity isn't just about heaven. It's also about earth. Matter of fact, one of the most beautiful and powerful pictures in the book of Revelation, those same chapters that you're talking about, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. John sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven and coming to earth. And really what that's talking about is a connection between heaven and earth. So really, Layla, it's just a matter of God isn't going to be finished with the earth at the end of the age. He's going to remake it, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. By the way, we shouldn't think of heaven as being uh, at some distance from earth, even though sometimes the Bible uses that terminology, but it's just using terminology that we can understand, that we can relate to. I, I would say heaven isn't geographically far away or I don't know what you say. Geographically isn't the right thing when you talk about space, but it, it, it's not X number of light years away. I would say heaven is very close. It's just of a different dimension. You know, sometimes scientists today will talk about the multiverse. And you know, I, I don't even understand that stuff. I, I'm not all that interested in it. It kind of makes my head hurt. But I, I will say this. Uh, heaven is not far away. It's just of a different dimension. And, and so... God will join those dimensions once again. Or if they were ever to begin with, he'll join those dimensions. Let's say that the new Jerusalem will come down to earth and the two will be joined. Hope that's helpful for you there, Layla. Next question comes from Dawson, who asks, my best friend and his wife lost their firstborn right at birth. 
I'd like to ask for prayers for them and what are some Bible verses that would comfort and reassure them. Their names are Hayden and Morgan, thanks. You know, Dawson, thank you for your question. And I can't read a question like that without our hearts aching for Hayden and Morgan. And as a pastor who's been in the delivery room for more than one child who didn't make it, again, not from our own family, but from families I was pastor to, it's hard to comprehend the, the, the pain, the grieving, the loss. I would reassure a, a dear brother and sister like that. First of all, with the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world to, to share that kind of pain. You know, this kind of thing of, of babies dying at or very near birth was much more common in the ancient world. Surely, in his 33 years on this earth, Jesus knew people who had had similar losses, and he entered into their pain and sorrow. It's part of the fallen human condition. Of course, there's no blame to place on anybody. But to realize, as Psalm, I think it's 139, says that God shapes us, fashions us in the womb, that he knows us there. That in some way that we can't comprehend, that as that child was alive in the womb, that child had some kind of connection with, relationship with their creator, their God, and still does. When David says in the psalm, you formed me in the secret parts, the places nobody can see, and you have this care. That God knows, he cares, he deliberately entered this world of suffering to share it. And in time, you, you'll come to greater peace with this, though it'll probably never leave you. Appropriately, you'll always remember, you'll always know. And one day you'll hold that dear child in heaven. That's a hope. That's a comfort. That's an assurance. David, King David, in the book of 2 Samuel, had a child who died very soon after birth. And David was in great agony while the child was suffering and while the child's life was teetering on the edge. But when the child finally passed, David drew a measure of comfort from it. He wasn't happy, no, but he drew a measure of comfort from that, knowing that now the child was with the Lord. And David said, I will see that child someday. I will go to him. You can have that same assurance of soul. And so, Lord God, we pray together as sort of a YouTube family right now. We pray for Hayden and Morgan. And 
Lord, we pray that you would communicate to them on the deepest, most personal level your love, your grace, your comfort. We pray that you would bring around them people who would be filled of understanding, not necessarily answers, Lord, but just open hearts ready to mourn and grieve with them. And Lord, we just pray that you would bring that comfort, that blessing that only you can bring. And we're not asking this, Lord, as sort of a a magic potion to make all the grief go away. Lord, there will be good and appropriate grief in the midst of this. But beyond it all, Lord, strengthen their trust in you. Thank you, Lord, who brings this kind of comfort. We lift up Hayden and Morgan to you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Dawson, and thank you for bringing that question. All right, our next question goes to Shai, who asks, Hi, Pastor Guzik, how can I pursue holiness? Thank you. Okay, Shai, the basic idea behind holiness is what we might call set-apartness. It's being set apart. And in some sense, it's being set apart from the things of the world, the flesh, the devil, and it's being set apart to uh, the Lord and the things of God. So think of it in those terms, Shai. Think of it in the terms of what am I going to set myself apart from and how am I going to set myself apart to the Lord? Because both of those aspects, I think, are important in holiness. Yes, God wants you to be set apart from certain things of the world, Uh, sinful things, bad habits, whatever they are, things that aren't productive or helpful in, in your walk with God. Yes, set yourself apart from those things, but don't forget to set yourself apart unto the Lord. How can you spend more time, um, consciously in the presence of God. Now, look, we're in the presence of God all the time. (laughs) Jesus said to his people that I'll be with you even until the end of the age. But often we live life completely unconscious of the presence of God. So when I say live your life consciously in the presence of God, I'm not telling you to recognize something that's not there. I'm telling you to recognize something that is there. So think of it in this, what am I going to set myself apart from And how am I going to set myself apart unto the Lord? Set yourself unto the Lord by uh, prayer, worship, fasting, uh, time in God's word. Uh, These things are just ways that we deliberately consciously say, okay, I'm going to shut out my attention, everything else, and I'm going to focus on God, on, on who he is, on how he's revealed himself to me. So we do that. And then that's a way to set yourself unto the Lord. And then we also, in concert with that, set ourselves apart from the, um, the things of this world. And maybe they're not necessarily sinful things. Sinful things, yes, of course. But maybe things that are just doubtful things for an individual believer. Things that God may be dealing with you about that he may not be dealing with your brother or sister about. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, Next question comes from Christopher. Uh, In the book of Genesis, Jacob wrestled with God. In Ephesians, we're told that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. What can we learn from this? Okay, well, Christopher, great question. Uh, 
Uh, what we learn from this is that God gave Jacob in a complete one-off, right? We don't read of God wrestling with anybody else uh, in these kind of circumstances at all. So th- this was definitely a one-off. And what Jacob did in some sense was an illustration of the spiritual struggle that we deal with. Now, there is a little bit of a difference here because in Ephesians chapter six, when Paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, he's talking about the struggle or the conflict we have with demonic powers and entities. That's what he means by principalities and powers and the rulers of this age. That's sort of New Testament vocabulary for demonic spirits and demonic powers, how they're organized in different ranks. So Paul's talking about it from the sense of wrestling with demonic powers, uh, understanding that we don't have a flesh and blood conflict, but we struggle against these demonic influences in, in however they may try to reach us. Jacob obviously was not wrestling with a demonic aspect, but with God himself, God wrestled with Jacob. Now, that, that still indicates something of an interior battle. It's an illustration of that. But basically, Jacob had to come to the place where he was overcome by God. The only way Jacob could win was by losing. Now, we are called to triumph on the basis of the finished, completed, victorious work of Jesus Christ. We are called to triumph over the demonic but we're called to lose in our struggle with God. Jacob won by losing, and we can do the same thing. We can win, so to speak, in our struggle with the Lord by losing to him. Uh, that, that's really what we have to do. So there, there's sort of both a comparison and a contrast there to appreciate. Hope that's helpful for you there, Christopher. Next question comes from Amy who asks, regarding Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 on forgiveness, do I have to give forgiveness face to face or can I pray for this? My dad has rejected me twice and I don't wish to face that again. Thank you for your help. Amy, look, I I don't think that there's necessarily a one size fits all answer to your question. I'll kind of take it just from what I sense in your question. I I mean, if we were sitting down face to face, I'd probably ask you a lot more questions, try to learn a lot more about the situation. So all I can go off is sort of a sense here, Amy, from what comes from your question. So let, let me deal with it on that sense. My sense is, is that you have expressed your forgiveness to your dad, uh, face to face before you've, approach your dad and he's rejected you twice. I would say you don't have to continue to offer your forgiveness to your dad face to face. You you can simply do it um, before the Lord and, and keep a very open heart to restoration with your dad. Amy, I, I, I make a distinction. Not everybody makes this distinction, but I'm I'm one of those who does. I make a distinction between Forgiveness and reconciliation. I do believe 
that not only we can, but we should be reconciled with other. We can, we should forgive other people without waiting for them to repent. But I don't believe we can be reconciled to people without some recognition of their sin, without some form of repentance. So, yes, keep an open heart of forgiveness towards your dad. And, and hopefully um, there will be a change in his heart. And there could be something that I think goes beyond forgiveness, even into reconciliation. So, no, just the way that you ask, ask this, um, I, I don't think you have to face it again. Amy, I think it's good that you've tried. Uh, but if, if you haven't had success after a couple times, it's okay for you to say, okay, now I, I'm just going to forgive him in my heart and before the Lord. And, and maybe God will at some later time open up a door for true reconciliation which would have to come through some kind of repentance or contrition on his part. All right. Thank you for that, Amy. All right. Next, we got a couple of questions about online church. So let me read both of those questions and then we'll quickly get to them. Uh, one of them is from Soaring to the Sky and Beyond, who asked this, Hi, is it wrong to do online church with a good sermon than to attend physical church close to your neighborhood, but you don't get anything from the sermon? That's one question. And then the next question is from Janet. Pastor Kuzik, I bless the Lord for you. Since COVID time, I've never attended church, but I watch online as I'm deeply challenged and inspired. Is it wrong? I feel that attending church is, a du is duty. All right. Well, let, let me say to both of you, soaring to the sky and beyond, and Janet, and everybody, I'll say this. Ideally, we attend a church in person. Now, I say ideally because the ideal doesn't work for everybody. Some people, because of physical reasons, can't attend church. Some people, because of, you know, whatever schedule reasons, can't attend church the way they would like to. Some people, for whatever reasons. But I don't think that we can deny that ideally, we attend a local church that we're committed to. Now, soaring to the sky and beyond brings up a good question. What if I don't get much from the sermon and I could get much better preaching online somewhere? Soaring to the sky and beyond, I would say, still go. I mean, I'm assuming there's nothing else. I'm assuming that physically you're capable of doing it. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, these are at least reasonably biblically faithful churches. Uh, I'm assuming that you're not socially excluded. Okay, whatever those things that might be more or less legitimate reasons for not going. I'm assuming those are all out of the way. And this is really just a matter of, oh, should I go? Should I not go? Go. And if you want to listen to some additional Bible preaching and teaching, uh, go for it. Soaring to the sky and beyond, we, we need to recognize that we don't want to approach church life like consumers. And surely... Even if the sermon isn't very good, if that pastor's preaching the Bible, there's something in there that can feed your soul. Go to it and say, Lord, give me one line, one scripture, one word, one thing to feed my soul. And God may be gracious and give you more than one thing, but go there and just say, just for that. But here's the other thing, soaring to the sky, and I would say this as well to Janet. Remember that you go to church not only for what they can give to you, but for what you can give to other people. Uh, pastor, I love and respect so much. Uh, my predecessor at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, the, the great Ricky Ryan. Uh, 
Um, Ricky used to sort of preach the principle. I think, I think he called it uh, 15 and 30. And he said, listen, come to church 15 minutes early and stay around after church 30 minutes after. And that's your ministry time. Because during the hour, hour and 15 minutes, maybe hour and a half, whatever it is for the service that you have, during that time, you're being ministered unto. But you have ministry to do one-on-one or in small groups with people, and you can find minister people to minister unto 15 minutes before church and 30 minutes after church. And I thought, man, what a tremendous vision for what church can be. So we don't go to church only for what we can receive, but also for what we can give to other people. Uh, And I will say this too. You got to say it's kind of tough to compare the local pastor in your own community to someone who just may be more gifted, more known. You're only seeing the good sides of him because that's just what comes out online. You know that some famous pastor, Pastor XYZ, whoever, uh, if he preaches a terrible sermon, he's not putting that up online. So it's not to say that he never preaches a bad sermon, it's just you're not seeing that one. So... Yeah, ideally, we're connected with a local church. And if you want to supplement that with some great preaching and teaching that you get online, praise the Lord, that's good. That's the way that I would answer that. All right, um, Margaret asks, God is love. Is God a feeling? In what sense is God equal to love? Oh, Margaret, great question. Thank you for your question, Margaret. God is love, so is God a feeling? No. Okay. Understand, Margaret. It's absolutely biblical to say, it says so in 1 John, God is love. But it's not biblical to say, love is God. So we're not making love and God equivalent to each other, but what we're saying is that God in every aspect of his being is love. So even in his judgment, it's a loving judgment. Even in his discipline, it's a loving discipline. It, even in his, uh, I don't know, revelation, it's a loving revelation. His miracles are loving miracles. There's an element of love in everything God does, but it doesn't go the other way. We would not say conversely that love is God. That doesn't make the equation work correctly. So we understand that. But we also understand, Margaret, that love, especially as the Bible speaks about love, is much more than a feeling. Um, Matter of fact, some of the prominent words for love in the Bible are much more based in decision than they're based in emotion. So, really, that's because... God's love is, I'm not saying that it has no feeling or emotional aspect to it. Of course not. But it's not rooted in that. It's rooted in what God has decided to do in time and space. Thank you for that great question, Margaret. All right. uh, Another question from Margaret. I don't know if this is the same Margaret, or maybe there's two Margarets. Uh, I'm a landlord with rental houses, and then I discover that my tenant is a lady of the night, a prostitute. 
Should I accept her rent knowing the money is made out of sin, asking for a Christian friend? Oh, so Margaret, you're not the landlord. A friend of yours is the landlord, or at least that's what you're telling our YouTube audience. Uh, okay, Margaret, uh, I think there's not a, uh, that I'm aware of, there's no direct biblical command on this. The, the Bible doesn't directly say, not that I'm remembering. Hey, I, I don't have a perfect knowledge of the Bible, so maybe I'm forgetting something here. But I, I don't think that there's a specific thing that says, well, if money was used, was obtained from a sinful conduct, then that money can't be used to pay for a good or a service that's legitimate, such as renting an apartment. So without a direct command about this in scriptures, I would leave this up to your friend's conscience before the Lord. I would talk to your friend and say, listen, pray about it. You just pray and say, Holy Spirit, I'm looking for you to guide me, guide me in my thoughts, guide me in my feelings. I'm not looking for, you know, letters written in fire in the sky. I just need a sense and impression, any guidance from you, Lord. Should I do this? Should I not do this? So Lord, help me to know, is this something you want me to accept or reject? And, and I would just trust what the leading, what the guiding of the Holy Spirit is for that particular believer. Look, look, there's some things in the Christian life that aren't specifically spelled out by Scripture. And so, therefore, it's important for the believer to sort of go before the Lord and seek guidance from them. And to recognize this, that what the Holy Spirit says to the conscience may be different from one believer to another. Maybe for one believer, the Lord might say, take the money. For another believer, say, no, refuse it. And there could be different reasons for those two different situations. So apart from a direct biblical command, which again, I can't think of a command or a direct principle in scripture that speaks to this, I would leave it up to that individual's conscience before the Lord. And it sounds like their conscience may be already telling them not to do it. I, I can't really say you'd want to interview that person more, but um, yeah, I, I would leave it up to their conscience before the Lord. Thank you for that question. Margaret, number two. All right, two questions about study Bibles. Kevin asks, what study Bibles would you recommend? And Yaya asks, what is the best Bible for study Bible, for study study? Which prayer Bible can you recommend for somebody who wants to learn to pray while using the Word of God? All right, well, first of all, uh, you know, I just emailed my publisher a few days ago. Maybe it was just yesterday. Uh, I'm under contract with Thomas Nelson Publishers to produce an Enduring Word study Bible. And I don't talk much about it because what's the point? It's still not going to be published for maybe even up to a year. Ho hopefully it'll come out sometime this year, but maybe not. Maybe it'll be the beginning of next year. And uh, yeah, I it, if my study Bible, the Enduring Word study Bible was published, I'd say buy my study Bible. I think it's going to be good because I do think it's good. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of people. Um, but look, there's good study Bibles out there. Um, the Nelson Study Bible is good. The John MacArthur Study Bible is good. Uh, the Ryrie Study Bible, I've used that through my days. Uh, there's several study Bibles out there that, that are helpful. I think a lot of it is just personal taste. So I, I can't really recommend a specific one until mine comes out. 
when the Enduring Word Study Bible comes out, yes, I'll be talking about it and I'll recommend it to you. Again, um, maybe later this year or the beginning of next year. Now, as for Yaya's question about a prayer study Bible, I've got something right behind me. Hold on here. Almost dropped it. This is a prayer devotional Bible. And uh, you can just look this up online. Prayer devotional Bible uh, compiled by a friend of mine, Ben Patterson. I'd recommend this one to you. Yaya, if you're looking for a um, someone who wants to learn how to pray while reading the Word of God, I would recommend this. The Prayer Devotional Bible, again, um, compiled, written by my friend Ben Patterson, who lives here in Santa Barbara. So, there you go. I'd, I'd recommend that. All right. Next question comes from Johanna, who asks, Hi, Pastor G. I pray you and your wife are having a wonderful week. I am having a wonderful week. My wife just got home from Sweden. She was visiting her parents. Hello, Nils and Gunnel, if you're watching. Ingelil got home. It's wonderful to have her back home. Uh, she had been gone for a while, so I'm having a great week. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, Johanna asks, how can one assess and discern what spiritual gifts are in order to put them into work for kingdom purposes? Well, Johanna, you know, you could go online and look, and there, there's these things that people have, spiritual gifts tests, spiritual gifts analysis, and you know what? Those might be helpful for some people. I've never really been real big on those things. But look, read and meditate on these passages in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, that talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and ask God to quicken your heart towards something, and then look for a way to exercise it. Okay, Lord, I, I see that you have a gift of mercy. I, I think that maybe you've given me a gift of mercy. Maybe I'd I, I like to have that gift. Lord, um, I, I pray that you'd give me this gift. Your Bible says that we should earnestly desire the best gifts, so, Lord, would you give me the gift of mercy and then just kind of consciously say, Lord, um, show me how I might exercise this gift if I have it. I, I think that's just kind of how you do it. And, um, you know, you do this with the right heart, uh, wanting to serve and honor the Lord, and God will guide you along the way. So don't overcomplicate it. Um, just, just do it in a very simple, direct way. Um, take little steps. <laughs> don't, don't, you know... Oh, maybe I have the gift of mercy. I'll establish a uh, nonprofit foundation with a budget of $10 million. And uh, no, 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 small steps at first. And if it's the Lord, he'll guide you along the way. And we can take a lot of comfort in that. All right, here we go. Lightning round. Let me take a drink of water here. Lightning round. Let's hit it. A witness for Jesus asks, Hi, Pastor Guzik, is there a possibility of doing a verse-by-verse -verse study on the book of Ezekiel this year? Okay, uh, witness for Jesus, maybe. Uh, Ezekiel wasn't on my list for doing soon, but I have thought about it. Um, it's on my list for doing eventually, for sure, because I want to do uh, any book that I don't have audio or video teaching on, I, I want to do first for the YouTube channel. I just completed a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Joshua, 20-part series, 
that will start to roll out when we're done with the current Genesis series. As Ezekiel, I hadn't thought of what book I'm going to do next after Joshua. I was thinking maybe a Leviticus or Numbers, but maybe I'll consider Ezekiel. Thank you for that suggestion there, a witness for Jesus. Christopher Robles asks, do Christians need to focus on the New Testament instead of the Old Testament? Um, Christopher, I would say a little bit. Yes, the New Testament is more relevant to the Christian life than the Old Testament, but just by a little bit. God has so much to teach us throughout all his word, and all of the scriptures point to Jesus, and all of them are necessary and good for the believer's edification. I don't like it when pastors and preachers won't teach the Old Testament. Again, I, I, I recognize if they put a focus on the, Old, on the New Testament, but there, there are some prominent pastors and teachers who pretty much ignore the Old Testament in their biblical exposition. I don't get it at all. I mean, the Bible is given, the whole Bible is given to us. So, uh, yeah, a slight focus on the New Testament, I think is appropriate. But no, don't ignore your Old Testament. God has a lot of rich treasures for us in there. Okay, next question comes from Tara uh, Davenport, who asks, Good afternoon, all, what does it mean to be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly value? Well, Tara, that uh, refers to a person who just thinks of heaven and the life beyond, and they're not concerned about trying to do good for God and their community right here, right now. Um, I, I think that that's a cliche that doesn't actually reflect reality. I'm not saying that there's not some people who are like this, but this is what I would say about those people, is they're not truly heavenly minded. <laughs> if we're truly heavenly minded, we're going to do what Jesus told us to do, and we're going to occupy until he comes. And we're going to realize that the best way that we can prepare for heaven is to be utterly faithful to God in everything we do right here on earth. So I think if you're truly heavenly minded, you'll be of tremendous earthly good. But there are some people who are just kind of in an airhead escapist sense, heavenly minded, and they're not doing much earthly good at all. So that's kind of the idea behind that phrase. Okay, uh, George asks the question, uh, how is Jesus a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? Okay, because Jesus is a high priest but he's not descended from Aaron, the first high priest, and from whom all the high priests of Israel genetically descended from. And Jesus instead, his priesthood is patterned after the priesthood of Melchizedek, who preceded Aaron by hundreds of years, and was a high priest of Jerusalem, and who Abraham honored. And additionally, in the Psalms, and this is what the writer of the Hebrews points out, it speaks of the Messiah and says that God has made him a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So it means to be a true high priest, but not after the pattern of Aaron, but after the pattern of uh, Melchizedek, this mysterious person that appears in the Old Testament just once in the book of Genesis, but is mentioned later in Psalms, and his real significance is sort of uh, explained for us out in the book of Hebrews. Um, Daniel asks, I have a hypothetical question. If a pregnant woman is raptured still on earth, 
when she turns into her spiritual body, what happens to the unborn baby? Daniel, I've never thought of that before, but I'm just saying the baby's going to heaven too. Why not? Baby will go to heaven too. I don't have any problem with that. Um, but I haven't thought of that question before. Um, Caleb asks this question. Hi, Pastor. This is Caleb from Virginia. Love your commentary. I'm a youth pastor as well as in the process of writing the book. What was your initial motivation in writing your biblical commentary? Okay, Caleb, great question for us to close on. The initial motivation for me to write my Bible commentary was, I've got a Bible study to prepare on Wednesday night. I've got a sermon to prepare for on Sunday. That's it. My commentary that's online, it's all rooted in my study notes, my teaching and preaching notes. Now, it's evolved a little bit since then. And certainly, if I'm preaching or teaching, I don't include everything that's in what you see online. But there's no doubt about it. It just comes from the notes I would prepare for myself in teaching and preaching. And what I found out through the grace and the generosity of the guys at Blue Letter Bible, what I found out with some unusual circumstances was this, that what I prepared for myself as teaching and preaching notes was helpful for other people as Bible commentary. That's what I found out through my good friends and brothers at Blue Letter Bible, which is a tremendous Bible resource. Of course, you can find my commentary at EnduringWord.com, and a lot of people do, but uh, you can also get my commentary, at least in English and in Spanish, at Blue Letter Bible. It's a great website, staffed by some wonderful guys. So, Caleb, that was my initial motivation. I, I never said... I'm going to sit down and write a Bible commentary. Uh, honestly, Caleb, I wouldn't consider myself qualified uh, because I don't have the training in the original languages. Um, at that time, and for a long time, I never had any formal biblical education. But I think I hope that I approach the scriptures with the heart of a scholar, even if I didn't have the credentials of a scholar, which I definitely do not. And... Uh, I take the Bible seriously, and I try to explain it clearly. And that's been helpful for some people. So, Caleb, I hope that answers your question. God bless you, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Uh, God willing, and if we live, I'll be with you next week, again, at our traditional 12 noon West Coast time in the United States, whatever that is for your time zone. God bless you, all of our viewers in Europe and wherever you're at, for our regular viewers so, so pleased that you could join us today. Thank you to our producer and uh, everybody on the Enduring Word team. It's just wonderful to see what God continues. Oh, I got some great news before we leave. I just heard from Andrea, uh, our general manager here at Enduring Word, that we have finished the New Testament translation of my commentary into Portuguese. Praise the Lord. If you know people, believers in Brazil, people who are Bible curious in Brazil or in Portugal or anywhere in the world that speaks Portuguese, you let them know at, I think the address is pt.enduringword.com. You can find it on the main website. But we have a dedicated Portuguese site, and I'm so happy to say great work, team. Our entire New Testament commentary is complete now in Portuguese, as it is complete in Spanish, as it is complete in Arabic, as it is complete in Chinese, as it is complete now in Portuguese, as it is almost complete in both Russian and Italian. 
as it is complete in German. Praise the Lord. New Testament complete in all those languages and God helping us. And if we get the support to do it, we're going to keep charging ahead with that work. So great work, team. And I appreciate it if you, all of our viewers, will continue to pray for that work to continue. God bless you. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.